Uh, we are going to be uh, studying. Now, I, I said I wanted to go into Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, and I was going to skip 8. I can't. Uh, through the series of events and the things that we've uh, experienced in this, the past couple weeks, I was so moved by Daniel 8. And I shared on Thursday with the Sunshiners. Um, and I'm going to share a little bit of that as an opening to Daniel 8. We are going to study Daniel 8. I'll do Daniel's prayer, uh, not next week, but the week after that when I get back. Uh, we're going to finish this prophetic picture that Daniel has in Daniel 8. It's trippy. It's one of the most amazing prophecies in Scripture. It's so... Uh, to the point, it's clear, it's specific, it's powerful. If you, if, if you don't see it, you're blind. It's that simple. So uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Daniel 8. Fellas, uh, will you pass out the scriptures? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. You're welcome to keep that Bible if you don't have one. Uh, back there, the fellow had his hand up back there. We missed him. And over there to the left. There's another one back there, John. Anybody else? All good? All right. I think we're set. Now, I'm not going to have you stand for the reading of Daniel 8 because it's long and you look exhausted. <laughs> it, is, it is long. I, but I want to do an introduction, and the introduction is similar to what I did with the Sunshiners. Um, I, uh, I was moved by some pictures that I saw, and... Um, and actually even more gruesome pictures than that that all of us have been exposed to of the 21 Coptic Christians who were murdered on the shores of the Mediterranean. And um, I, I, uh, th- that affected me. It affected me. I, one of my most fascinating places I love to visit uh, when I go to Israel, and we just got back from a trip there, and, and it's, it's the Valley of Elah where David slew Goliath. And... Um, it's, scripturally speaking, it's, it's one of those locations based on the coordinates that we get from the, the Bible itself that we can, we can pinpoint exactly where it took place and, and within 500 yards of where David stood and where Goliath fell. Uh, and the, the, the stream still goes through there. I actually pulled this rock out of that stream. There was no water in it because uh, it's dry, but uh, I, I pulled 15 out, one for each of our elders. We're going to give them today. And... Um, it's fascinating to me because that story, I, I want to show you the story. I, I, I pulled it up on the um, uh, text here. It says, the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And I've shared this countless times, belongs to Judah. The reason why I stopped there is because people think that the story of David and Goliath is a story on how to defeat a giant. It's not. It's a story on how content God's people are to allow Satan to occupy territory that belongs to God. The Philistines were in Judah. Judah belongs to God. Judah belongs to God's people. And that's what's so important. The first sentence dictates it all. They encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Damon, which even today we know exactly where those locations are. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the Valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side. Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. You can see this to this day with a valley between them, the Valley of Elah. And a champion, a champion, went out from the Philistine camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Now that's nine feet, 10 inches tall. Big boy. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And the interpretation in the Hebrew is that it was almost shaped like scales, serpent. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of the spear was like a weaver's beam, you know, the shunk, 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 shunk on a weaver's beam. And the iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels the size of a shot put, but for him it was an accurate spear. He would, you know, you try to throw a shot put, and you're like, ooh, he used it as a spear. Uh, and a shield bearer went before him. And then, they stood and cried, then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? And, and not, not the servants of God, servants of Saul. He's appealing to their flesh and frightening them because Saul's not willing to engage. He's paralyzed by fear. His le- the leadership is. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And then the scripture says, and the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
And then the idea of that is they were on the brink of insanity. They were paralyzed by fear. 40 days they couldn't move. And they're absolutely captivated and stunned by fear. Even their leadership was frightened. Saul wouldn't move. They even invoked the the name of Saul. Saul, you serve him. Saul's not even moving. Is there anyone willing to move? Nobody moved. And every day he came out at nine feet, 10 inches tall. He got bigger and everyone else got smaller. He had a voice that bellowed. His armor was so captivating that everyone was paralyzed. This man was a sight to behold. And as the scripture goes on to say, a ruddy little boy walked out. David, when he walked out on the battlefield, he was unarmed. He had a sling, but no bullets. It's like having a gun with no bullets. He walked out and it wasn't until he was engaged in the battle in the valley, ready to take on Goliath, that that it was then he reached in and pulled out five smooth stones, put them in his bag. And Saul intimidated him. Saul said this, Saul said, I'm going to cut your head off and I'm going to feed your carcass to the birds of the air. And that's when David said, you know, uh, he, he said, you think that's what you're going to do to me. That's what I'm going to do to you in the strength of the Lord that everyone will know there's a God in Israel. And, and he gave glory to the Lord. And what David declared is he said, listen, I recognize that your physical weaponry is far superior than my own. You're intimidating and you're a spectacle to behold. But the problem is you think the battle's against you and me. What you don't realize is there's a battle against you and God and you have just opened up a can of Jesus. And so David was a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon and certainly he removed his head from Saul's, or excuse me, from Goliath's body and fed his carcass to the birds of the air. It's a fascinating story. Ready little boy. I mean, he, there was no reason why this guy should have won. And I believe wholeheartedly that when David had never, David never called Goliath by name. He never called him a champion. He never called him a giant. He called him a reproach, a defier of the armies of Israel and an uncircumcised Philistine. He had no time for Goliath. He wouldn't even call him by name. Everyone else called him a giant. Everyone else called him a champion, not David. David walked out and saw Goliath through the eyes of God and to the eyes of, of God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. He's tiny, squish him like a bug. And, and when Goliath began to run at David, David ran at Goliath, took him down with that. He invoked three names for God, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah, and he also invoked the living God because he knew who his God was and David wasn't moved, he wasn't paralyzed by fear, he was moved by faith. Now I say that because the church is paralyzed by faith. We're scared to share our faith. We're scared to talk about Jesus. We're scared to step in the political arena. We're scared to step in the school systems. We're scared. We're scared. And in addition, our faith is non-existent. We, we decry the removal of prayer in schools, yet there's no prayer in the church. We decry that the scriptures have been taken out of the schools, but there's no scripture in our homes. Our children aren't read to in our homes. We're paralyzed by fear. We're intimidated. Our God isn't big. And when the church wakes up and realizes the God we serve, that we don't have to be paralyzed by fear and we can operate in the context of faith, every giant will fall. And all the enemy has, listen to me, all the enemy has is fear. That's all they have. And right now they are working overtime. And what moved me and and so angered me, look at this picture. What do you notice? Look how tall they are. They, they did that on purpose. A lot of people think they doctored it. Another picture of it. And they deliberately allowed that blood to flow into the Mediterranean. And it's a war of ideas. And these 21 Coptic Christians, they didn't die that day, they just began to live. And that paralyzes you. We just had a threat to America's mall. There's this police everywhere at LAX. We have a, a president who, 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 re, who will not declare Muslim extremists. This is a war of ideas. And the church is being intimidated. They're, they're, our, our, our rights are being removed. There, there is a concerted effort taking place. And I share that because when we get to Daniel 8 this morning, in Daniel 8, you're going to see a God that not only can take down a, di- a giant with a stone, you have a God that writes history and then performs it. Nothing happens on this earth apart from his sovereign hand moving in the affairs of men. 
when you realize the power of the God you serve, it today should remove your fear. I think of the older folks in our congregation. This is a time where there's two stages in your life where fear starts to take hold, one when you're young and one when you're old because your body is incapable. God, God chose a ruddy little boy who was outgunned and outmanned to show you that it has nothing to do with your physical ability, it has to do with your faith. In a time where most, most elderly folks are scared because their bodies are starting to decline, this is a time where you just turn up the faith because you have walked with the Lord all these years and you know him to be faithful. Transfer that to the next generation. In this passage of scripture, Daniel is 80 years old, if not older. He's reflecting, he's going, it's not, in, it's, it's not in a chronological order. We're going back. Chapter seven was further back. Chapter eight even, we're gonna set the stage for it, where it fits. And so with that, let me read this scripture. But first pray, Lord, I ask your blessing and courage. Lord, I pray this morning, all those who are present, we live in a world that just seems to be engulfed in fear. Lord, I pray today that fear would be lifted and faith would be established. Lord, do a mighty work. Holy Spirit, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. And I saw in the vision, and it so happened, while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and by the way, Shushan, uh, Esther, right? Story of Esther. It's not, it's not an empire yet. It's in Persia. And uh, yet he's taken 250 miles uh, away in a dream from Babylon to Shushan. And, and being taken 250 miles, he's also taken 200 years in advance in history. I tell you what, that's a dream right there. That's trippy. Every, every book of Daniel would make a great movie. And so he's in the citadel, verse two, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. See, look, two horns. And the two horns were high. See, look. But one was higher than the other. See, look. And the higher one came up last. So it grew last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. See, look. Then he came to the ram, which had two horns. See, look. Which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confront the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground, trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat was very, uh, grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Glorious land meaning Israel, Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So he's talking about desecrating the temple in Jerusalem. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn and opposed the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Eli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So Daniel gets Gabriel, a personal visitation by Gabriel. Mary and Joseph got Gabriel. Gabriel's, he's high end. <laughs> Daniel's beloved. 
Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So he's going to describe to him exactly what the dream is. So Daniel's like, all right, let's do this. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. All right, so picture that. He's laying down, face to the ground. This, could you imagine Spielberg pulling something like this off in movies? My face to the ground. He touched me, and I stood upright. <laughs> That's cool. I just like it. He said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of, of uh, Medea and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king, and as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and prosper and thrive, and he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people." He operates in the context of fear. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart, and he shall destroy many in their prosperity, and he shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means, and the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So Daniel writes it down, seals it up, and check this out, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days afterward. I arose and went about the king's business, and I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. He's like, what was that about? He wakes up with a migraine headache. He's nauseous. He's overwhelmed by this vision. It's talking about, you know, a ram with two horns. One's larger than the other. The last one grew out of it. Takes on an, uh, a, you know, goat with a single horn. Kills him. Four horns grow out of that. And out of one of the four horns is a little smaller horn. Then this guy becomes some ruthless leader that desecrates the temple. And his end comes by not unnatural means. And it's just, it's crazy. And Daniel's like, what is this? And, and, the, and the angel Gabriel says, I'll tell you exactly what it is. He gives him a description. He says, this is what's going to happen in the future. I am going to tell you history before it happens. Where do we get the word history? His story. God's story. I remember when I was a history major at Fresno State, and my, my uh, dissertation, not for doctorate, but for, you know, for my final graduation piece, uh, I wrote a, a, a historical paper on historical prophecy in a secular school. And my professor didn't like it. He tried to kick it out. They, I, we appealed. They let it stay. Uh, the students had had to evaluate. It was a big group of folks for the graduate students. And it was intense. And they scrutinized it on and on and on. But it was cool. And a couple of kids started going to church. And, and the, the, the teacher was furious. And I was pointing out, I go, look, Greeks looked at a cyclical view of history that it repeats itself. Others said it was just, you know, happenstance and, and chaos. I believe God writes it and then performs it. And so you have a problem with that? And I did graduate, praise the Lord. <laughs> so I love studying prophecy because it's, it's God giving us history in advance. And um, Spurgeon used to say that, that all prophecy is pregnant with promise and every promise is a prophecy. God guarantees it. It's to give hope to us, especially in a time. Think about Daniel. He has nobody surrounding him who are believers. He's, he's in a foreign land. He's lost his family. I mean, we've been through this. And this prophecy is encouraging in one sense, but it's overwhelming because it's a picture of, of the temple he absolutely beloves. It loves being desecrated and, and forces rising up and, and operating in deception. And, and it, it grieves his heart to see that happening to a place of worship. And, and this, is, this is a picture that, that God gives him, and we're going to see in chapter 9 how he responds to it, how he responds to chapter 7, chapter 8. He responds by prayer. In addition, let's remember, uh, we finished chapter 7. Chapters 1 through 7 were written in Aramaic because God was writing to the Gentile people. Now in chapter 8, God, through Daniel, begins to write in Hebrew. Now, granted, we're still talking about Gentile leaders, but their effect on the Jewish temple itself. So it's all in Hebrew to give promise to God's people. And so from chapter 8 to the end of Daniel, it's all written in Hebrew again. And as he begins to write this, he is dealing with what is taking place in the temple and how God's people will be affected by this, this, this leader that's going to come out of one of these four horns. And we're going to take a look at the, the two horns. We're going to look at the single-horned creature. We're going to look at who the four horns are. We're going to look at the little stub horn and who those people are. 
And, and all of these folks, this is why... This is why liberal theologians tried to take Daniel and say that it was written in the 5th century instead of the 2nd century. Because they, they hate the idea that Daniel spoke history so accurate 200 years before it occurred. But we have cross-referencing that proves even Alexander the Great was moved by it when the scrolls were unraveled to him. We have, we have cross-referencing and historical facts that just blow your mind in relation to dating Daniel in the second century. It wasn't in the fifth century. That's the best they can do to try to dismiss scripture. But it doesn't work. And here with the second century, Daniel writing this, it is fascinating. It'll blow your mind what God has revealed to him. And so the time period of when this is taking place, just to put it in a chronological order, it's the third year of the king of the reign of King Belshazzar. This vision appeared to Daniel. So this third year puts it between about 551 BC. And that's 12 years before the fall of Babylon, where Belshazzar is. It's 12 years before the fall of Babylon that we studied in Daniel 5. You remember the finger on the wall? Meeny, meeny, tekafarsin, or however you say it. And so we're going backwards in time in this text. So stay with me, put your thinking caps on, pay attention. You're going to need this. It's going to be an encouragement to you if you can pay attention. If you're going to wander and play with your phone, go somewhere else. God wants to blow your mind and you, you want to play Clash of Clans. Stop. We don't provide the internet for you to do that. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. I heard your voice. After the one that appeared to me the first time, so that's what he's referring to, the vision in chapter seven, he says in verse two, I saw in the vision and so it happened while I was looking that I saw that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. So Daniel's carried into this vision 250 years or 250 miles from his location and 200 years into the future. And, and the province of Elam is, is within Persia and Persia isn't even an empire yet. It's not even an empire yet. And, uh, and so you're, you're, you're floored by this. And as I said earlier, side note that Shushan is where Esther was. Remember that? So in, in verses three through eight, this is, this is a remarkable detailed pro- uh, prophecy in verses three through eight. And, and, and uh, it, it gives, it, we're given answers to what these prophecies are in, in, in verses three through eight. We're given answers by the angel Gabriel. So there's no need to speculate as to what these, what these creatures are. Gabriel defines them very clearly in verses 20 and 21. In verses 15 through 19, God tells the angel Gabriel to give Daniel an understanding. And then he lifts him up. He's laying flat. And he starts to describe to him what it is. He says, the ram which you saw having two horns, they're the kings of the Medo-Persian empire. You got that, Daniel? Yeah, 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 yeah. One small, one large. This one grew last. It grew bigger. He says, okay. He says, the ram, that's the Medo-Persian empire. You got that? He goes, I got that. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So what happens is the Medo-Persian empire, the Persians rise higher than, than the Medes. And then the, 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 um, the male goat with the single horn kills the Persian empire. There's a conquering of the Persian empire or by the, the, the Grecian empire. And that... You know who did that was Alexander the Great, if you know your history. Okay, nobody does. All right. <laughs> so there's no need for speculation on this. We know history, but Daniel's seeing it 200 years before it happens, and, and it's 12 years before the Babylonian Empire is even created. The, the, the Babylonian Empire, or excuse me, 12 years before the, the Babylonian Empire falls. And this is what's so fascinating. It's 100, now listen, this prophecy is 180 years before Alexander the Great is even born. He's not even a twinkle in his dad's eye. His dad's not even a twinkle in his grandpa's eye. It's 180 years before Alexander the Great's even born. And you consider the details, this idea the ram with two horns represents two kingdoms, the Medo-Persian Empire, the the second horn larger, that's that the Persians were more powerful. And history tells us that when the Persians went into battle, their king didn't wear crowns, but the Persian king wore golden ram's horns. You've seen them in the movies. They're coins. If you if you've archaeological evidence, if you see the Persian coins, they, they have the ram with two horns on the Persian coins. This is archaeological stuff. It's just apart from the Bible. This is outside the Bible. It's also interesting to note that the territories, the Persians divided the territories by a zodiac sign. They gave the territory of Elam or Persia to Ares, which represents the ram. 
Fascinating. And, and Macedonia, the area later developed by Greece, they put under the control uh, uh, of the sign of the Capricorn, which is a goat, corna, and a single horn. So the sign of the Capricorn was a goat with a single horn, and that becomes a national symbol of Greece. And this is Alexander the Great. But Saint Daniel sees it 180, 200 years before it happens. So many years before these two empires, before they ever come to fruition and come to power, Daniel sees it. Now in verse four, it's remarkable. He says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward. So the ram is pushing westward, northward, and southward. So if you study how the Persian empire operated and how it expanded, just do your history. Just close the Bible and go do history. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed. Oh, Bible's boring. You're boring. History's boring. You're boring. Read. You've been given a mind. Use it. Seriously. And, and, and in this picture, you, you, the study of the Persian Empire, you'll discover this is exactly the way their empire spread. It spread westward, northward, southward. And the, uh, they first went west, conquered territories west of them, then they went north, and then they went south. You just look at it on a map. Follow it. The Persians fielded an army of two and a quarter million to two and a half million soldiers. They were enormous. Logistically, think how hard it is in that day and age, even today, to field an army that big. And, and they, they, um, they became a, a force of brutality. No one was more brutal than the Persians in the sense. They were ruthless. And they actually came upon this province of Greece and they massacred people in there. And the, and the Greeks never forgave them. And Alexander the Great grew up under this understanding of the evil of the Persians and he hated them. So in, in verse five, it speaks of the goat, Greece, with this one dominant horn, and that's Alexander. He rises out of this goat, one horn, and you see this picture of the river Eli, and, and the, this, this goat just comes in, just sticks it to the ram with that horn, and, and Daniel's like, he is, and he, heavy dream, heavy, like beyond what NyQuil could do to you, heavy. And he's seeing 200 years in the future. Alexander the Great was born in 356 BC. And by 336 BC, he's the king of all the Grecian forces. He's 20 years old. Now he has 35,000 troops. So he's king of very, very small military. He's going up against two and a quarter million troops or two and a half million troops. He's 20 years old. He's leading an army of only 35,000 troops. He's going against incredible odds. It is stacked against him. He is outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, on and on and on. But here's what happens. There's three battles. This is all historical, outside of scripture. Do your homework. Three battles. The first one occurred in 334 B.C., uh, that was May of 334 BC, November of 333 BC. And then the final battle was October of 331 BC. And this is where Alexander the Great fights the Persians in each of these three battles. Uh, and the last one, it was, it was an interesting positioning in the battle. The Persians were noted for, for attacking early in the morning and they would go into a battle attacking from the east. And the reason why they would go into battle attacking from the east is because the sun would be behind them and it would blind their adversaries. This is how the Persians operated. Alexander the Great, great tactician. God gave him all these faculties. He understood it. So what he did is as the Persians lined themselves up, marching in from the east in the early morning and the sun's in the eyes of Alexander the Great and all of his 35,000 troops and they're up against two and a quarter million. Alexander knew this, so he lines up the army to the west so the sun's in, in and Alexander and his troops' eyes, the sun's in their eyes. But what he did is he had all their men polish their shields. This is apart from scripture. Do your own homework. He polishes the shields and, and, and they were made of bronze so they're just absolutely just shimmering to the point where they're reflecting his mirrors and it all of a sudden makes the army look twice as big as it is. It, it, it's godlike. It's frightening to the Persians and they decimate the Persians in this battle and it is a miraculous victory. Uh, they had an incredible miraculous victory and as a result of that, they moved west in furious power and they hated the Persians for what they'd done to his people so he eviscerated them and wiped them out. And it says that he moved across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's, that's what verse five says, remember? This, this one-horned creature will move across the surface of the earth as though he doesn't even touch the ground. That means he's moving rapidly. Alexander the Great conquered the world. 
in 12 years without any engines, planes, Stuka dive bombers, tanks. He conquered the world in 12 years. We can't even solve social security in 12 years. Just wanted to point that out because I apparently want to get rid of it. When Alexander the Great would come into a, a, a nation, when Alexander the Great would come into a nation, they would be so fearful of him. Here's why. He just conquered the Persian army of two and a quarter million people with 35,000 troops. This, by the time word gets to the outer edges of the known world, people, you know how you play operator and it just exaggerates? By the time they're discussing Alexander the Great in these outer reaches of the known world, he is 50 feet tall and he's got lightning coming out of his eyes and he eats entire cows in one sitting. I mean, he, he burps and people die. And, <laughs> and, and, and this is, the, his, his reputation precedes him. So what would happen is he'd come into a land, the people would realize he's coming, they would open up the gates of the city, they'd say, we're yours, they would yield, they would make a lunch and they'd sit down and say, welcome, this is your new territory, we don't want to fight you. <laughs> and they would just melt like a hot knife through butter. 12 years he conquers a known world. Now, this is historically speaking. So at the age of 32, he's 32 years old. He started at 20, he's 32 years old, 12 years, everything's conquered. He turns to his generals and he wants to fight someone. He's wired for war. He goes, give me somebody to fight. And they go, there isn't anyone else. You've conquered everyone. I'm like Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm king of the world. There isn't anyone left. He's now conquered the known world. What does he do? Michael Phelps wins more gold medals in a single Olympic than any other athlete in the history of the world. Where do we find him? He's got more gold medals than any athlete in the world. He's taking bong hits. Where do we find Alexander the Great after he's conquered the known world? He's drunk in the rain, depressed. So for all those who think it's just one more trinket that you've got to own, you'll be happy. It ain't going to happen. He owns the world. And, and he's drunk. And he's, he's out in the rain. And it's cold. He's depressed. Catches pneumonia. And at 32 years of age in a secluded palace in Babylon, he dies. He's dead. Because he got pneumonia. <laughs> and he died alone and drunk. You know, the reason why he was so powerful was not because he was a superman or that he was empowered by the gods. The reason why he was so powerful is that he was a vessel in the hands of Almighty God who writes history, his story. God wrote it. Alexander the Great, I'll use you as an instrument. You'll use... Let me, Mao Zedong massacred hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. And we think ruthless, he had power, God couldn't stop him. God's in control. First of all, the fastest growing Christian nation in the world is China because they're unified under one language, Mandarin, that Mao forced them to study. He was an awful dictator, brutal, brutal communist leader. But Mandarin is all through that area. Fastest growing Christian nation in the world, China. They're sending more missionaries than America is. There are more Christians in China than communist party members right now. Yeah, that's good. All 11 of you are excited about that. <laughs> They're sending missionaries into the 1040 window, the Muslim world. We're not sending anybody. They're sending tons. And, and you, you look at it, the nation was unified. And the cool thing about the Mandarin language, study it on your own. It, is, it has intricacies and nuances in it that, that absolutely embrace the gospel. When, when, people, when, when the Chinese people start to look at, at their language and start to see it in, in unison with the gospel itself, with the scriptures, they're floored. The characters of their, of their, of their language, of their alphabet, or of, of their written language, it, it, it blows people away. It is so uniquely equipped for them to know the gospel. And that's the same thing. You think about Alexander the Great. He conquered the known world. By the age of 32, he's dead because he dies alone drunk. But what does he do? 
He changes the language of the world from Aramaic to Greek. The Septuagint, which is the Old Testament, was written in Greek. And eventually the New Testament that you hold, everything you hold in your hand right now, the scriptures you hold, is a result of Alexander the Great, the Greek. He created tens of thousands of paved roads throughout the Middle East, roads that would help spread the gospel around the world. Western civilization began because of this man. Now, he's not good or bad. He's an instrument in the hands of God. God is good. God will use all things together for good, even evil rulers. Don't ever forget that. The other picture that I I love about Alexander the Great, he conquered, uh, after his victory over Tyre and Sidon, which Nebuchadnezzar could never do after 12 years, he did it in like three months. He conquers Tyre, so he heads south, Alexander the Great heads south to Jerusalem. And as he, this is all dictated, this is all uh, uh, covered in a, uh, a non-biblical historical document, okay? So <clears throat> after he conquers Tyre, he heads south towards Jerusalem. And while he's traveling, he notes that he had this dream of white robes, men in white robes, and another man in a purple robe with a gold headpiece. So he has this dream, and the dream he, he noted troubled him. He told his men it troubled him. He had no idea what it meant, but it was so vivid. Alexander the Great had this dream, white robes, one man in a purple robe with a gold head piece. So when he arrives in Jerusalem, like every other nation that knows they're going to be conquered, and this time the priests of Israel are coming out to meet him, and they're all dressed in white robes. The high priest was dressed in a purple robe with a gold miter on his head. Alexander the Great sees this. It is in unison with his dream, similar to what's happening in the Muslim world, that Muslims are coming to Christ through dreams. The high priest comes out to talk with Alexander the Great, and it was the same man he saw in his dream. He's like, whoa. At that point, and this is all noted, the high priest showed Daniel, Daniel chapter two. He shows him the leopard, remember? And then Daniel eight, he shows him that passage that was written 200 years before Alexander was born. Daniel's reading what we're reading right now. Alexander was stunned. He bowed before the priest and it it surprised his generals. And his generals were stunned. They asked him why he fell on his knees before this man. And this was his quote. He said, I did not fall on my knees before the man. I fell on my knees before his God. He's floored by what you're reading right now. Floored. And so after he dies from pneumonia, the horn is broken. And the Grecian empire now is divided into four different sections. Those are the four horns. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. It was divided between four generals, Ptolemy, Cassander, Lysimachus, and Seleucus. And it took took Alexander the Great 12 years to conquer the world. It took these guys 22 years to divide it. These guys were worthless. And they're less, obviously, than Alexander in the prophecy. And here's how the division of the Grecian Empire ended up. Cassander got Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus got Thrace and Western Asia Minor. Ptolemy got Egypt, North Africa, Palestine, and Seleucus got the Middle East to India, although Seleucus ended up, his empire ended up taking over Israel and the Palestinian area. So those are the four horns. So Seleucus now takes over Palestine. So this is one of the four horns. Watch this. And you remember the little horn that came out of the fourth horn? There's a leader that came out of the Seleucid empire. Daniel 8 talks about it next. It was verse nine. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east and toward the glorious land. That's why it's now being written in Hebrew because it's dealing with Israel and Jerusalem. So out of this fourth horn comes this little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, the east and toward the glorious land. This little horn seems to be God's way of of speaking of of a coming leader, similar to the antichrist that we saw in, in chapter seven. So as this is taking place, uh, the little horn comes into history about 220 years from the time of Daniel's vision. It clearly comes out of the four generals and it takes over the Grecian empire at the death of Alexander. Now the timeline is clear here. Verse eight, the male goat is a Grecian empire, grows great, great. The large horn, Alexander's first king, broken up into four pieces. Those are the generals. And out of one of them came this little horn, this new leader, and he moves towards Israel. And the reference is the land of Israel. That's the reference of the glorious land. So the little horn in chapter eight is, and this is historically speaking, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. The city of Antioch is named after him. We know Antioch, it's in the New Testament. He was a ruthless tyrant, just like the the text says, especially against the people of Israel. He slaughtered in one day 85,000 to 100,000 Jews in one day. He hated Jews. He was an anti-Semite to the nth degree. And, he's, and, and this is what the scripture said of the little horn, verse 10 of, of 
of uh, Daniel 8. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of the transgression. An army was given over to the horn uh, to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. So Antiochus Epiphanes, it came from the line of Seleucus, and it's his kingdom, and it's this area of modern-day Syria. So he reigned over this dynasty from 175 to 164 BC, and Epiphanes means divine. I had an epiphany, or divine awakening. And, it, and his, his, he was called Antic, uh, uh, Antichicus the Magnificent, or they call him Antiochus the Glorious. And his Jewish nickname was interesting. The Jews gave him a nickname. They called him Antiochus Epipomenus, which means Antichiotus the Madman. They hated him. 85,000 to 100,000 Jews in one day. And Daniel tells us what he's going to do 200 years before he does it. And sure enough, in 171 BC, he kills the high priest. This, this is historically speaking. Josephus covers it. He kills the high priest, makes an end of the sacrifices. And in 167 BC, he desecrates the temple and he slaughters a pig there. And those of you who are wondering about a pig, Jewish dietary Levitical law, no pig. He desecrates the temple by killing this pig. In 165 BC, Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabean revolt, we've heard of that, right? He led a revolt in Jerusalem to recapture the temple, to rededicate the temple. And he cleansed and rededicated the temple. And that day is what Jews today celebrate as Hanukkah, or as we Gentiles call it, Chanukah. And the Bible refers to this as the Feast of Dedication. And actually, Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication in John 10. So Antiochus Epiphanes was on his way to Elam, to Persia in 165 BC, when he heard what the Maccabean revolt had done. It infuriated him. infuriated him that they cleansed and rededicated the temple. So he raised his hand to the sky. He raised his hand to the sky and he cursed God. When I get back to Jerusalem, I'm going to make the largest Jewish cemetery on earth, he decried. I'm going to kill more Jews than have ever been killed. And as he was screaming at God, he started choking and coughing. <coughs> he fell to the ground, swelled up. <laughs> His stomach burst open and he was being eaten alive by worms. <laughs> Gag a maggot. I remember one time when I was in San Jose, I went across the street from the church to go get a burrito at the burrito shop, and I smelled this thing by the strip mall sign. I'm like, what is that? I saw a dead cat. I'm like, oh, man. I kicked it, rolls over, and the backside it was just covered in maggots. Like, rawr, rawr, rawr. it stunk, and I just wanted to share that. So. <laughs> the, the difference is with this guy, the difference is with this, he's still alive, and the stench of it is so bad that he stunk so bad, his, his men didn't even want to help him or pick him up. It took him a week to die. You don't curse God and live. And while, it, and, and you guys have heard of Second Maccabees, it's, it's from the Apocrypha. This is uh, scriptures that our, our Catholic brothers and sisters hold to. Um, we don't. We, there's 66 books of the Bible. We don't consider them to be inspired and inerrant. But in Maccabees, it talks about this exact thing that happened um, with Antiochus. And uh, it, it says that, that he, he apologized to God in Second Maccabees. He said, The God of the Jews is a true God, and if he would heal me and raise me up, I will honor him. He healed me and then raised me up. I'll honor him. And of course he died. God's not into making deals. He just isn't. Repent and, and cry out for mercy and he'll save you. But you want to make a deal with God, you lose. Same thing with the devil. You enter into a deal with the devil, you'll find out you're a junior partner. God doesn't make deals. I'm almost finished. This guy, Antiochus, a little horn. God declares this historically speaking. He writes the history. He talks about the Medes and the Persians and he talks about Alexander the Great thumping him and floating across the world in 12 years, conquering the known world, dying at the age of 32, four kingdoms coming out of it, four generals, historically speaking, Ptolemy, Seleucid, on and on and on, all listed. And here you have Antiochus coming out of this. He desecrates the temple, just like we read in Daniel 8. All of this. Alexander the Great's blown away when they unravel the scrolls that are 200 years old. He reads them. He's floored. He falls on his face. We're holding the same scriptures written in Greek because Alexander the Great established that language in the Western world. 
This is the God we're serving. This is the God who holds this heavens in the span of his hand, who writes history and causes a stone to fly through a valley to conquer a giant. And nobody in the room should be afraid. Amen. Nobody. And in the midst of this, these rulers rise up and they intimidate you and they frighten you. And you're paralyzed. You don't want to talk about the gospel. You don't want to share the Lord. You don't want to talk about it here. And you're not allowed to talk about it there. And you're not allowed to do any of that. And we buy it. And we succumb to it. Because we're paralyzed. And these rulers who decry themselves greater than God are on the ash heap of history. Antiochus shakes his fist at God. Worms. Blah. Herod the Great slaughtered babies in Jerusalem. He was eaten by worms. Herod Agrippa, the first, standing in the book of Acts 12. You can read it on your own. He's giving a great speech. They declare that he's like God. He accepts the glory. He falls down right there. Worms. Faratima, the queen of Cyrene, persecuted the church. She fell down. Worms. Read about it. Hermenides, the Roman governor, persecuted the church. Swelled worms. Galarius, Roman emperor, persecuted the church. Blasphemed God. Worms. Philip of Spain. Worms. There we go. It's dangerous to persecute God's people and blaspheme God. You think those giants that slaughtered our brothers on the shores of the Mediterranean got away with anything? They're the ones who are in trouble. Those 21 brothers started living that day. And the worms started eating the others that day. You don't mess with God and win. Daniel's honest. I love what he says at the end of it. He just says this vision drained him physically. He's 80 years old. And I share that because I look at the older folks in the congregation. You're tired and you're scared. This is when the enemy wants to paralyze you. This is where you have the most to give. This is where you should be pouring it on. This is where, this is where you should start teaching the other generation of the, of the country you grew up in. Imparting it to them. Working hard to make sure you leave it better than you found it. There's no time for retirement. There's no time to kick your legs up. There's no time to be afraid and, and, and be paralyzed by somebody taking your social security. Work hard. Daniel was drained. He was physically sick. We step back from this picture of Daniel 8 and I close with this last thought in the two minutes remaining. There's three things I want you to take from this. Three things. Number one, the sure fulfillment of prophecy. God's in control. A sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without his full knowledge. Every position of authority is ordered by the Lord. He has every tear you've ever cried in a bodily, has every hair on your head numbered. He looked at Job and he says, who guides the, the, the Orion through the night sky? And he, he says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words or without knowledge? You don't know anything. Do you understand what it's like to order the universe and control it? You're being held on nothing in the expanse of space. And God says, I'm doing that. You're traveling at over 100,000 miles an hour. You're spinning and I'm holding you to the ground by gravity. And you don't even know we have to define gravity. Coulomb's law of electricity, the light charges repel. You should be shot into the universe. I'm holding you here, and you don't even know what to do to describe it. And if you were to move 5% closer to the sun, you'd burn, and 5% further away, you'd freeze to death. I hold you in a delicate balance. I love you. And you want to attribute it to some cosmic accident. When I hold it, and I ride it, and I own it, God says. You don't need to be afraid of that. Trust me, God says, trust me. I write history. And that's why Peter would say the more sure word of prophecy. It's remarkable, detailed, ancient history, miraculously fulfilled. You're reading it right now. You get to look back and see it. It should blow your mind. It should comfort you. It should encourage you. The word of God is true. You can trust it. You can stand upon it. You can declare it. And yes, you can read it. And you can read it to your kids. We decry that the word of God is taken out of schools. Put it back in the home. Amen. And the ultimate possibility of the depraved heart is the other thing we learn. <laughs> we like to think every day we're getting better in every way. There's been more deaths in the 20th century than all centuries combined. 
on the face of the earth. We live with machines and gadgets. We look at these things and, and, we, and, and the, the tragedy is we've made no, no moral progress whatsoever. The human heart is still desperately wicked and evil. And then finally, the sovereignty of God, even over evil rulers. The book of Daniel makes a point. Nebuchadnezzar, he got too big for his britches and God sent him out to pasture and eat grass for, like a cow for seven years. Belshazzar arrogantly drank as we studied in Daniel 5. He died the same night. Across history, we see the hand of God. And again, as God says to evil men, this far and no further. God is not slack concerning his promises. He's gracious, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. And you want to push that line and you want to test God? It'll finally come to a point where he says, this far, no further. You step over that line, it's worms for you. This far and no further. And our God has got us covered. And he says to the enemy of our souls, this far and no further, these are mine and I love them. And I cover them in the shadow of my wings. And my people I protect. And don't be afraid of the man who kills the body. Be afraid of the one who kills the soul. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. No one can kill us. We're alive already. He's given us eternal life. That life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. The men who died that day were already set free. The ones who thought that they lived are already dead. Our God writes history. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We thank you, God, that we don't need to be afraid. If God is for us, who could be against us? No one and nothing, no weapon fashioned against us will stand. Lord, you're in complete control. And I pray today, God, as we've seen the picture of this magnificent, prophetic description of, of history 200 years before it, it, it happened. God, would you please instill in every person present in this room a confidence that the God they declare with their heart and with their mouth is the God in whom they can trust and they no longer need to be afraid. They no longer need to be paralyzed. They can walk in faith. Bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.